Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. A reading from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Listen to what God is saying to you, God's church. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. God will dwell with them, and they will be God's peoples. God will be with them as their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. God said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, All is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. To those who emerge victorious will inherit these things. I will be their God, and they will be my sons and daughters. May God add a blessing to the hearing and reading of the scripture. Good morning. Will you please pray with me? Oh God, you have sent your spirit into this place and into our hearts. Will you pour yourself out over all those that are here, giving comfort and peace and healing to those that need it. Please bless both Carrie David Collins and Jeff Myers for their hard work and labor. Send your spirit and your love into my own heart that I might speak your truth from love. Amen. Good morning. morning. My name is uh, Trevor. Johnson, as Kate uh, um, introduced me this morning, I'm filling in for Pastor Emily McGinley, um, and I am a student here at Chicago Theological Seminary, which is the building that we're in right now, Um, and I've been attending here at UVC for over a year now, and it's really wonderful to be part of this community and to be here with you this morning. Um, Last week, Pastor Emily, uh, for those that were here, spoke to you about the Valley of Dry Bones and the very real existence of death, hell, Sheol, Gehenna in this world. I probably don't need to remind you of that or of what has happened this last week, but it is an important part of the work that we have as a church to remain aware of the tragedies that we live in the midst of. Whether it is our president announcing that he will define gender, erasing trans identity from our legal system, or whether it's the group of refugees making their way through Central America, or it's the bombs mailed to political leaders, or it's the hurricane, or it's Hurricane Willa, or Typhoon, you too. There are all of these existences. I specifically want to take a moment to remember the 11 people that were murdered at Tree of Life Synagogue yesterday in Pittsburgh. 
and the congregation that will be holding trauma and grief for years to come. Um, for those that haven't seen it, UBC did release a statement on this, and if you have a chance, um, look that up. Death and tragedy are in our midst. The valley of the shadow of death feels very real these days, and it's not just those national news events, it's also the tragedies that don't get picked up by the major networks. Two weeks ago, when Christian Coons was speaking here, uh, he mentioned uh, working as a chaplain. This ministry of chaplaincy is the work that I'm planning to go into after I finish uh, my, de my degree here at CTS. And last summer, this last summer, I did a stint of chaplaincy at Rush uh, Hospital. One of the reminders that was given to us throughout the summer was, this day, your Tuesday, may be utterly different for those people that you see. It may be the worst day of their lives. And so with that reminder, I want to just start with that. Start with this first things that the text talks about, the place that we're at right now. Um, but that's not where we're going to stay today. Emily did not leave you in the valley of death last week. She ended with hope. And that hope found in the kingdom of heaven is what we're going to be talking about today. But how do we talk about heaven? How do we think about heaven? How do we sing about heaven? Uh, certainly not all that we say and show is helpful or accurate to how it is discussed in the scripture. Um, there have been lots of depictions of heaven throughout the centuries. And one recent depiction is in the show, uh, in pop culture, is in the show The Good Place. For those that have seen it, I do watch it religiously. And yes, there was a pun intended there. <laughs> in the show, we have a vision of heaven that is in bright primary colors. There's no more cursing. And all of the food is frozen yogurt. The scene is saccharine, and for some in the show, it is actually quite unsatisfying not to give anything away. There's another portrayal of heaven that I know. I'll tell you about this one. It's one in which every person at the time of death finds themselves in a grand concert, worshiping God by playing contemporary Christian music from the 1990s, <laughs> and does so for eternity. I know this portrayal because this is how I described heaven in uh, an assignment that I wrote for my high school creative writing class. Uh, now, after my fallout with uh, contemporary Christian music, I can honestly say that playing Chris Tomlin, Michael W. Smith, and Newsboys for Eternity <laughs> might actually be my personal hell. Thank you. I hear some recognition. I hear some recognition. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but this is how we talk about heaven, right? This is how we talk about it. That version of heaven that I wrote about was inspired by how we talk about heaven in our church. And these portrayals may seem a little too perfect, and there's something about them that feels a little empty. But there's a way, too, that the church often talks about heaven. We make getting into heaven the end-all, be-all of Christianity as if there isn't anything in the here and now worth worrying about. We heard it in the music this morning. I'll fly away. Heaven is our home, and we're just passing through. God called another angel back into heaven. God wanted another flower for his beautiful garden. They're in a better place now. These are the things I heard countless people say at the bedside when I was serving as a chaplain this summer, sometimes only moments after death. The church misses a few things when we move too quickly to life after death. 
We miss the people sitting in front of us still breathing. We miss the tragedy trying to grasp at the hope. We miss the need to grieve, the loss trying to grasp, just be happy for them. And sometimes it's even worse than that. For one of my friends, at the funeral of his brother, the church said to him, I'm sorry about him, and it's too bad that he won't get into heaven. The church is more preoccupied with questioning their credentials for the kingdom of heaven than caring for their family. So what does the text say about all of this, all of these ways that we talk about heaven? Maybe, hopefully, there's something richer there. And I have to say, when I first read the text for today, uh, it reminded me of that artificial sweetness of TV heaven and the missteps that the church makes at the time of death. The city will be covered in gold and jewels, it says later in the text. And it seems really nice, doesn't it? And at the same time, it seems to minimize the grief and tears moving quickly to the joyous city, even as it describes the fact that not all will be there and some will be thrown into the pit. There's something that's hard about it. But I knew that there had to be more to this text, and so I decided to try to get some answers uh, straight from the horse's mouth. Now, I'm not talking about John, who we think wrote this text, and I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit, who we believe inspired it. I'm talking about Jeff. Uh, Jeff Myers is uh, uh, in, uh, in leadership here today, or in leadership here at UVC, but he's also a scholar uh, on the Revelation of John and is currently leading a small group here at UVC on reading Revelation responsibly. So after speaking with him, this is a little bit of what I was able to gather. A Revelation of John was written shortly after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, about 70 CE, making it clear that the Roman Empire wasn't going to tolerate persistent and, cons- and resistant peoples anymore. This book is actually a letter written to seven churches in what is today uh, Turkey, The people in that area were the victims of terrible economic exploitation, being forced into debt slavery and then forced to grow crops that would not be used for local food, but instead for trade. So there was also a famine on top of everything. Historians of this piece of literature point to how the Revelation is mostly not original text, or as amazing and grandiose as it is. It's actually a patchwork of images and stories and entire sections of text taken from other places, which was surprising to me. It's a quilt of images that already existed somewhere. And some of these stories are from the Old Testament, some are from Greek and Roman mythology or common folklore, and some are creative retellings of popular stories used to enforce the imperial Roman religion. That's important. We'll come back to that. More than anything, scholars will point out that John is attempting to write a story to foretell the fall of the Roman Empire, as well as encourage those Christians and others suffering under economic oppression to resist, to rise up. These are those who conquer that is mentioned in the text. Earlier in this letter, we hear about the destruction of the city of Babylon, which is how John describes, uh, how John makes reference to the city of Rome and all the evils that it contains. Then we hear about the pit and Satan and the serpent and lots of fantastical imagery. Most of it is a subversive retelling of stories from the Roman imperial religion. Then this passage that we hear today is at the very end of the letter, and it describes the city of God, the kingdom of heaven, or at least how John sees it. 
The letter goes on to describe the city in more detail, the jewels that cover its walls, all various colors, and the tree of life that sits at the center of the city and the river that runs down the streets, bringing life to all in the city. This vision is John's attempt of thinking about a world without the death and oppression that was the life of those living in those seven cities in Turkey, living under the boot of, Roman, of the Roman Empire. The vision is a reaching for something else, something good, something not Roman. In fact, John makes a point of telling us about the destruction of Babylon and tries to make it very clear that this is not Rome, whatever this city of God is. His vision is defined in part by what it's not. But it's also a stretching for something better. It's a vision that asks, what if God were in charge instead of Rome? What would that be like? That is, as best as we can tell, what John is writing about. But what does the text say to us today in our place and time? What does it say to those who have lost someone very dear to them? During my time this summer as a chaplain, this question came up week after week. What comes after the grief? Does the grief ever go away? How do we get there faster? There was one person that I worked with whose wife of more than 60 years was about to die. When I asked him about it, he looked at me and said as he was tearing up, I haven't known you more than five minutes. I'm not talking about it with you right now. And I look back on this, I think to myself, but of course, of course. One of the things that I learned this summer is that grief is the other side of our love. We grieve because we love so deeply, and we wouldn't grieve if we didn't love. He had loved her more than 60 years. He wasn't ready to let grief that big out in the open. The message that John has for us is that one day your tear will be wiped away. But he doesn't say don't cry, don't grieve. It's important to feel our love for someone and to feel it well. Grief is like a river and it can't be pushed any faster than it already goes. The hope that we have here is that for us on this side of the veil of death, we will smile again, we will laugh again. We will feel the joys and highs of love again. I say that that is our hope because I can't say it for sure. That's the nature of this world that we live in. That's the nature of the first things. But we are a people of faith. So we have faith that there's life after death for us, those still breathing. There's a life after her death or his death or their death. There will be life for us and death does not have to be the final word. For the love that exists between us and them is still alive and burning, even if they aren't here with us anymore. And that love is extremely important. That love helps us when we are in the midst of the empire's oppressive violence in this day. So what does the, this text say about this empire in the valley of death? Now I'll begin by saying that the Revelation of John is a queer text. Now, some of you may be saying to yourself, uh, he said Revelation is a what text? Does, does he know that they based the Left Behind series on it? I do, I do. Uh, earlier, I mentioned the subversive nature of John's Revelation. Now, queer, as we talk about it, often refers to, the, to a type of sexual identity, as in Q of LGBTQ. The way that it is also defined by queer the theologians like Marvin Ellison 
is that queer is a transgressive, creative, binary, exploding approach to the world. When I say queer here, I mean queer as moral commitment to be transgressive and creative. That's the approach that I see John taking in Revelation. This is extremely important in how John retells the stories of empire in a way that turns them on their heads, subverting the narrative. John also describes a rainbow-colored city with 12 gates which are never shut. It's an image that begs the question, why are there even walls with gates like that, right? It's a pretty queer image in its own right. The subversive storytelling and the creative imagining are the message that we take from this text here in our midst. We need those things. Because we need the stories of those who are being threatened with erasure or deportation, the stories of those suffering violence, the stories of those who are exiled from their countries, their families, their churches. These are the stories that we need right now, especially those stories of LGBTQ folks. Those stories bring us back toward the kingdom of heaven. They are subversive because the Romes of our world would sooner destroy our temples than bear those, stir, those stories being told. It's the revelation in, in the revelation of John. It is the word and testimony of Jesus that is literally the weapon of heaven. And there's something essentially queer about Jesus literally slaying with his words. Is there not? We also need a queer transgressive visioning to help guide us toward the New Jerusalem. Without it, we end up with images like The Good Place or Endless Michael W. Smith, visions that can seem shallow, empty, saccharine in their vision. And we need queer visions that guide us into new ways of being, new structures for our cities that don't separate, but hold all of us and hold us with wide open gates, inviting more into the blessed kingdom. Because if it isn't a kingdom of God for people who are trans, migrants, activists, or victims of violence, it isn't the kingdom of God. And this story and this visioning is healing when it's done well, isn't it? It pushes us to live out the vision that Jesus had for us, and it helps us to remember the last point that I want to make about heaven today. And that is that the kingdom of heaven is here and now. This is what the text talks about. It says that God will dwell with them, that God's people, that uh, they will be God's peoples, and God herself will be with them. It's unlike the high school vision that I had or the, the good place, right? It doesn't take place after death or after some cataclysmic event. It takes place in the here and now. And Jesus takes us a step further and says that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here in front of us. This is important and transgressive in its own right. We don't have to fly away to heaven. We have to bring it here. Heaven can be here, and we can see it even in this place, this place that is a place between justice and injustice, right? And I know a little bit about taking some joy and hope in a place between justice and injustice. Just uh, one month ago, um, Allison and I got married, and I was standing about here when that happened, and I was wearing this jacket, <laughs> which was really wonderful and joyful, and there was so much hope and beauty in that room. And there's something about, uh, there's something about, that's hopeful about getting married in the time that we live right now, right? Something about saying that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with someone 
in the days that we live in right now. But it, the wedding took place on October 6th. It was the day after, um, excuse me, it was the day after the conviction of Jason Van Dyke, justice. And it was the day of Brett Kavanaugh being uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court in justice. There's a time between justice and injustice. As an aside, I do take a bit of petty hope in uh, the fact that my marriage should last longer than Kavanaugh's time in the Supreme Court. <laughs> There's a song that I love uh, where the only lyrics are, the kingdom of heaven is sown in my skin and nothing will ever take it away. That's a visceral image, isn't it? Kingdom of heaven sown in my skin, as close as our skin. It's an important message that... Uh, when all too often in this world we think of about our bodies as just temporary places to be and we'll fly away to heaven one day. Instead, we need to work to protect the kingdom of God in our very midst. And we do that by protecting bodies, by protecting bodies from gun violence and sexual violence, by protecting trans bodies and queer bodies and migrant bodies, by protecting bodies from shame and abuse. This is kingdom work, and it's already part of us here at hand. And some of you may be saying, now, Trevor, you've talked a lot about all of these other things, but you haven't talked about what happens when we die, what happens to us after we die. And you're right, I haven't talked much about that. And as Christians, we do have faith in a life after death, even if we don't know what it will actually hold. This revelation of John is a piecing together of images, much like things like The Good Place, a piecing together of images that we have. And even if we don't know what it, what it will hold, I personally have seen too much goodness in God's love to think that death has the final word in our lives. What we do know is that there is much to be done here, that heaven is at hand and helps us to have hope for that work. Our visions of heaven push us to take up that work. The love that we have for those who have gone before us carry us into that work. And it's that love that helps us, that heals us, that moves us. So during the time for communion, there will be this piece of fabric over here. And next week, we'll have a place to put um, pictures of those that we love, those that that connection is still there. So that fabric is there for names of those that you're still holding on to. That love that's still there for that grief that's still there. And now I'll close with a word of prayer from Laura Martin. And we'll leave it up on the screen during reflection time um, so that you can ponder this as well. It is inconvenient to hope in a theater like this world the scripts will tell you of the embargo of justice from black bodies. They will tell you of the ways that humanity was left on the threshing floor. They will tell you of the hot intoxication of fear. And yet, every day, someone is in ecstasy from hope. And yet, every day, the one who speaks in the sacred common goes on in dinner conversations and tumbling flowers and the allegiance of laughter 
And yet, every day, we are given to something greater than convenience. Something that takes the old script and rewrites it with us. Amen. Thank you.